When I was in graduate school and learning about different types of therapy or treatments, I wanted to know what would help people who engage in non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short. Of course, that was before the term NSSI officially existed. I learned about a relatively newer type of treatment called dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT, and that there was a growing body of research showing that it was effective in treating borderline personality disorder, a diagnosis which many times includes self-harming behavior like non-suicidal self-injury. So naturally, I dove in and learned all about DBT. I received training and I began leading DBT individual and group therapy with adults for a couple years. But what is DBT and what does dialectical even mean? What does the science say about it and what aspects of the treatment are thought to be most effective in addressing self-injury? To answer these questions and to walk us through the four modules of DBT and how they can be used to address self-injury, I am joined by my friend and colleague, from right here in Dallas at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, Dr. Jenny Hughes. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and Chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. When I started working at Children's Health in Dallas nearly 10 years ago, I kept hearing people talk about Jenny Hughes, a former student and intern. She was doing some incredible research work and training in California with some big-name psychologists. Then she decided to come back to Dallas and work at Children's. She worked in our suicide prevention program and our inpatient program, so we naturally had a lot of interaction and we became friends. More formally, though, Dr. Jennifer Hughes is an associate professor and licensed psychologist at the UT Southwestern Center for Depression Research and Clinical Care, or CDRC. She's the head of the CDRC Risk and Resilience Network, which aims to build partnerships with local schools and youth community organizations to implement mental health promotion and suicide prevention programs, as well as to work together to better understand resilience and risk in youth. Dr. Hughes is also the operations lead for the UT Southwestern Texas Youth Depression and Suicide Research Network. Her research explores the efficacy and effectiveness of psychosocial treatments for building resilience, the prevention and treatment of youth depression, and addressing suicide in youth. Dr. Hughes recently delivered a TEDx talk for TEDx Kids at SMU. Welcome, Dr. Hughes. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's exciting to get to talk to you this morning, and um, congratulations on your podcast as well. Well, thank you. I ask everyone at the beginning of every episode how they got interested in the topic of non-suicidal self-injury or self-harm or self-injury. So for you, I know your interests are broad, but how did you become interested in researching not only suicide, but also non-suicidal self-injury? Yeah, so my very first job out of college was as a research coordinator on a large National Institute of Mental Health study called the Treatment of Adolescent Suicide Attempters. In working on that project, I got to know a lot of teens and families, and a lot of those teens were struggling with non-suicidal self-injury. And I really didn't know very much about it at the time. And honestly, I didn't really know a lot about suicide at the time. I was hired to work on this project and under the fabulous mentorship of a couple of greats in our field of child psychiatry, Dr. Graham Emsley and Dr. Betsy Kennard. 
they were the heads of the study and I learned from them about the great opportunities that come with working with people who are struggling with this at points in their life. And so that was kind of my entry into this area. And then over time, I went to graduate school and through various other opportunities, found myself drawn to dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, which we'll talk about more today. But at my postdoctoral fellowship at UCLA with Dr. Jonas Sarno, I had the great opportunity to train with Dr. Marshall Linehan, who's the developer of DBT. And that really just opened my eyes to more and more of the research and clinical experience with non-suicidal self-injury. And so we do find, as you know, that sometimes it does co-occur with suicide, not always, but sometimes. And so I found that in working with youth, my specialty is depression and suicide prevention with teens. And in working with a lot of teens, I would find that non-suicidal self-injury would come up. And so I tried to learn more and, and took every opportunity that I could to get more supervision and experience in that area. And then over time started doing some research in this area as well. And you're part of the Collaborative Adolescent Research on Education in Suicide Team. Yes. So yes, that was the work I referenced at UCLA. So when I started my postdoc there with Dr. Jonas Sarno, she had just started the study in collaboration with Dr. Marshall Linehan, Dr. Elizabeth McCauley, and Dr. Michelle Burke. And so this was a two-site project done through the University of Washington and Seattle Children's and UCLA and Harbor UCLA. And so we were starting the study just as I began my postdoc. And I laugh because really like three months into postdoc, I was sitting in a room with Dr. Linehan role-playing and I was like, wow, this was a definite life choice here you know, to go and, and to pursue this training and kind of be thrown in in the water when it comes to the training for DBT with the developer herself. So it was a really great experience and also just really important work. You know, DBT had been really widely disseminated in adolescent treatment centers and inpatient units, IOPs, et cetera, but it hadn't really been well studied in that population. And Dr. Alec Miller, Dr. Jill Rathus had done a lot of early work with Dr. Linehan in adapting DBT for adolescents, but we really just didn't have the research. And so that study was the first U.S.-based randomized controlled trial of DBT. And I was fortunate to be involved both as a DBT study therapist, but also as the director of the UCLA site. And three big studies or three big papers have come from that most recently, just this September that just came out, one of the big papers with the study results that we'll talk about later after we talk about the specifics, the nitty gritty of DBT. And for people that are listening, many are already familiar with DBT. Some may not be, but it stands for dialectical behavior therapy. What in the world is dialectical <laughs> behavior therapy? Yeah. So Dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT as we call it for short, is really an approach to therapy that combines a couple of different modalities, but also that has sort of a centralized theory. So first, let me talk about the theory that underlies DBT. Dr. Linehan really put forth what we call the biosocial model, which is this idea that people have a certain biology or a sort of biological predisposition, if we're to get into fancy terms, but that people have a certain biology for the way that they experience and handle emotions. You know, I like to think about it kind of like you know, we as psychologists put a lot of things on the normal curve. Like we say most people have sort of average levels of whatever it is, right? And then there's some people that have really small or low levels and some people that have really big or high levels, right? It would make sense that emotion experience would be that same way. Whereas most of us experience emotions 
like the average bear, right? Like we have an emotion, we experience it, our body does certain things, we maybe have certain thoughts associated with that. It all happens, we label as emotion, we have some kind of urge with that, and we go on with life, right? But it also makes sense that there would be a small group of people that maybe experience emotion in a smaller way. Maybe they don't notice those cues as much. Maybe they're a little kind of dulled to emotion. And it also makes sense that there's probably a small group of people that experience emotion in a pretty intense way, right? And so DBT was really created for the group of people that are in that kind of top side of that normal curve that experience emotion in a really big way. They're particularly sensitive to emotional stimuli. And I don't mean sensitive like a, you know, oh, you're so sensitive kind of way, right? But more of a like a thermostat that just any little change, it kind of clicks and turns on or turns off, right? And so these folks, usually when they have something happen, they experience an emotion quickly. And it's usually a really big emotion. So it jumps up and then has a really kind of slow return to baseline. Again, that's not how sort of most people experience emotion. And so the idea behind the biosocial theory is that these people that are in this group that are particularly sensitive to emotion go through the world experiencing a lot of invalidation. And what I mean by invalidation is just these experiences where other people don't understand or get these people's experiences with emotion or reactions to different situations. And so they kind of downplay it or they don't understand, or they say or do things that makes it seem like the person with the big emotion is somehow wrong or off for experiencing that. And these people that are doing this are not necessarily trying to be hurtful per se. It's just that they don't experience emotion in the same way, right? And so the biosocial model basically says that folks who are born with this kind of predisposition towards this kind of intense emotion experience or this sensitive emotion experience struggle as they go through environments where people don't really understand this. And so through these struggles, they experience times where they're told that their reactions are either too big or too dramatic or too weird or difficult, or they go through times where their experiences are kind of ignored because people just don't know what to do with what they're seeing in this other person. And so over time, this kind of pattern of invalidation really can result in some very difficult ways of moving through the world for these individuals. They either learn that to get people to understand their emotion experiences, they have to kind of come at it really big and they have to like express in a large way the way that they're feeling so that others will pay attention to it. Or they kind of learn to second guess their emotion experience and maybe kind of tamp it down or push it down and not really respond much at all, resulting in sometimes this difficulty in sort of labeling their own emotions or knowing what to do with their emotions, how to regulate their emotions, because they've just gotten such inconsistent and strange cues from the outside world, the environment, their family, their friends about what their emotion experience means. That's kind of big picture the theory. My next question is the term dialectical and dialectical behavior specifically in what that is and what that means. Yeah. So dialectics really refers to a philosophy. It's a philosophical perspective that the nature of reality is this sort of repetitive cycle of opposing forces that kind of then synthesize and there's some kind of resolution that then is a new set of opposing forces that you have to kind of figure out how to navigate through. And so I think one thing at the core of understanding dialectics is just this idea that change is constant. So any given moment, we have to sort of accept the present how it is and also be aware that the next moment is a different present moment. 
kind of moving through the world, understanding that continuous change is something we have to become comfortable with but also this idea of these opposing forces. So let me concretize that a little bit. The core sort of dialectic we talk about in DBT is acceptance versus change. Those are really two of the big driving forces in this treatment, are understanding how acceptance and change and one's relationship with those sort of two ideas can help you in this world. The thing I often think about when I'm doing DBT with my clients and we're working together is what situation are they in right now and is it possible for us to change that situation or is it something that's less possible to change and do we need to really focus on acceptance skills typically most situations are a combination of both right there may be something that is so big like being stuck in a family that you feel like you don't fit in especially as a teen where you can't just immediately leave right or you know having lost somebody that you can't bring back right there's certain situations that are just things we can't exactly change so those are the things where you got to work toward acceptance and within those things there probably are some parts that could be changed in the loss example, maybe there's something you could do to reach out to other people or connect with other people that are grieving. Maybe there's something you can do to help yourself get out of bed every morning and you know remind yourself of the things that you loved about the person that you lost. With the example of a family, maybe there's time you can spend with your extended family that you get along with, or maybe there's one sibling that spending time with them makes you feel a little bit better than the rest of the bunch. And so you try to kind of set up your world where you're hanging out with that sibling more often. So really helping people think through how they can become experienced in moving between these kinds of skills, acceptance-based skills versus change-based skills, and how kind of there's moments where one or the other might be more effective. Even once you find the set that's effective, there's probably still some value in taking a look at the other because you have to synthesize these opposing ideas, and then you have a new moment to synthesize because change is constant. Those are some great examples. In thinking about dialectical behavior therapy, we know that it has been helpful for so many people. What about DBT is helpful? Like what is, I guess, the mechanism of change? What brings out the positive outcomes in therapy using DBT? Yeah, so I think we're learning more scientifically about the mechanisms of change, but I will say what drives the theory, DBT at its heart is dialectical behavior therapy. So it is a behavioral treatment. What that means for our listeners who maybe don't know as much about that is that we use the principles of behaviorism. So we're constantly looking at what are the behaviors we want to increase and what are the behaviors we want to decrease and what are some strategies we can use, things like positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. We don't quite use positive punishment and negative punishment as much, but how can we use this sort of model of behaviorism to increase effective behaviors or increase the behaviors that that really are working for a person and helping them move more toward building the kind of life that they want to have and how can we use these behavioral principles to decrease behaviors that are not effective and that are maybe moving them away from the things they want for their life in dbt you use behaviorism mixed with some of those dialectical principles that i talked about earlier where we're looking at change we're thinking about acceptance we're integrating in even some cognitive or some thought-based work so those two kind of mechanisms of change sort of dance together in dbt to create this treatment that includes a couple of specific modalities so dbt has individual therapy 
where clients will come in usually once a week and meet with their DBT therapist and have a session that's pretty specifically focused on some targets that I'll tell you about in a moment. And then the other parts of DBT include a skills group. You heard me mention change-based skills and acceptance-based skills. So DBT skills group is a class that clients will come to once a week. It's anywhere from one and a half to two hours and it's run in a group format. And that's the opportunity to learn all of these different skills, mindfulness skills, interpersonal effectiveness skills, emotion regulation skills, and distress tolerance skills. Those are the four main skills modules. And those are taught in this class format where people get to learn about it with other people that wanna learn these things. And that's taught by two DBT skills group leaders, the leader and the co-leader. And then DBT also includes the opportunity for phone coaching. So we know that anytime you learn something new, you gotta practice it, right? Just like we get homework when we're in school. The yeah, same kind of thing applies when you're trying out some new skills as you need the chance not only to practice them in your individual session or in your class, but you also need the chance to practice it out in the real world. And so the phone coaching is meant for clients to be able to call their therapist or their skills group leader and really kind of work through what using the skill will look like and to practice the steps. And then the fourth modality of DBT actually doesn't involve the clients at all. It is the DBT consultation team. So all DBT therapists, group leaders and co-leaders are on a team together where they meet once a week. And the whole point of the team is really sort of like therapy for the therapists. It's an opportunity for the therapist to come and get consultation on how they, the therapist, can be more effective in doing DBT with their clients. I always tell my patients it's sort of like they get, you know, 10 therapists for the price of one because I have the support of the other people on my team to think through the ways that I can help them better. But DBT team also provides support for therapists because as we know, sometimes it can be hard as you help people navigate suicide attempts or non-suicidal self-injury as a therapist. You want to be there for them, but sometimes you can hear things that are really distressing as you walk alongside them in their distress and, and their ways to cope, you know, and so consultation team gives a chance for the therapist to get support in that area as well, which I think has really personally helped me with preventing burnout over time and doing this work. And I think that's one reason it's such an important built-in part of the model. But as you heard there, DBT is a lot of things. So I do think when you ask mechanism of change, we have a lot of work to do to really unpack and understand all of these pieces. When you're in it, they make a lot of sense and they all fit together. But at the same time, we could argue there's maybe a lot of active ingredients in the treatment, or maybe there's only one or two and all this other stuff we added is fluff. So this is why research over time is going to be really important to help us unpack some of this. Can you give a, a snapshot before we get into each of the different modules that you just referenced? Can you give us a snapshot of how DBT might be applied to someone who engages in self-injury? Yes. Let me start by saying a lot of the early DBT research and clinical use really was for a very specific population of individuals. The early studies included women, adult women, who had had recent suicide attempts plus some other kind of self-injury. So it could have been that they came to the 
uh, treatment with multiple suicide attempt history, or it could be that they came to the treatment with maybe one past suicide attempt and then a history of non-suicidal self-injury. Now, over time, more and more of DBT has been used with people of, of all ages, of you know, lots of different diagnostic backgrounds or experiences, and lots of different experiences with current and past self-harm behavior. But I will say that, again, most of our research is for that very specific group that presented with both non-suicidal self-injury and suicidal behavior. And moving to your question about what might it look like with someone with non-suicidal self-injury. So typically one starts out DBT by going through what's called the commitment phase of treatment. That is an initial anywhere from two to four sessions where the patient, if it's a teen, the patient and the parents will meet with the therapist to really understand what DBT is. And oftentimes you'll talk about the biosocial model. So as I shared earlier in the podcast, you will help folks understand what to expect with the time commitment of DBT. You heard me just explain that people come in for a one hour individual session and then a one and a half to two hour group. So that is a time commitment, right? And also to really just get the patient's buy-in, for lack of a better term, for being part of this treatment. Oftentimes, we will work with people who have really struggled with intense emotion and maybe non-suicidal self-injury or suicidal urges or behavior for quite a bit of time before they actually make it into DBT as an option. And so the DBT commitment phase is really to make sure that the patient is an informed consumer and that they really have an informed consent process about what DBT might do and how DBT might look a little bit different from the other treatments they've had in the past. So after the commitment phase, when everybody's kind of on board, treatment begins and the client will join group as quickly as possible and get rolled in. There's usually some on-ramps that occur between the modules. So they'll get started in the group class and then they'll start working individually with the therapist. DBT individual therapy really focuses specifically on three domains of, of targets. The first is addressing life interfering or life threatening behavior. The second is addressing therapy interfering behavior. And then the third is quality of life targets. And so for somebody who's coming to treatment with non-suicidal self-injury, it's probably going to be the topic of the individual session quite a bit because that would fall into that life threatening behavior category. And so the patient and therapist work to have the patient start using a diary card where they track their intense emotions, they track their urges towards self-harm, whether that's suicidal urges or self-injury urges, and they track their skills use. Over time, the therapist and the client do some behavioral chain analyses where they work to really kind of unpack the urges. And so if I had a patient come in in the last week who had had an episode of non-suicidal self-injury, we would put that at the top of the agenda and we would do a behavioral chain analysis to understand the vulnerabilities that particular day. So things like, had they slept well? Had they been eating? Were, you know, were they feeling kind of just generally rested? And then understanding the events that led up to that behavior. And so was there anything particular that ha in particular that happened? What was the emotion or the thought reaction to that event? What were any action urges that they had? What were any skills that they tried? So, you know, did they try to listen to music for a while to see if that intense frustration went down? Or did they have the urge to cut themselves, for example, and go straight to that urge? And so through these chain analyses, the therapist and the client sort of get to know that experience and then try to think about what skills could be inserted to break that chain of behavior. 
So early therapy is spent a lot on really kind of unpacking those situations a bit to understand them better and also to then come up with some solutions. And so the kind of backside of a behavioral chain analysis is a solution analysis where the therapist and client really look together at the patient's skill set and what skills they could try, what new skills they might be introduced to and learn that they could try the following week if those same urges came up. And over time, you kind of build out that sort of menu of skills that the patient can go to with the hopes of increasing emotion regulation over time so that the change just starts to break itself and you start to see a real decrease in the self-harm behavior. So you've been using the word skills in reference to what you mentioned even listening to music. And I know some people are thinking, well, listening to music isn't a skill. It's just something I, I do for fun. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is meant by skills? Yeah. In DBT, skills are sort of any behavior that somebody does that helps them to be more effective toward a goal. (laughs) So I think listening to music is a great example of one, right? Like that is something a lot of us do and a lot of us do it just for fun, right? And we don't really set out with like a mission before we're listening to music. But if someone was listening to music as a DBT skill, that could fall under a couple of our skills category. The sort of most straightforward one would be as a distress tolerance skill. Distress tolerance skills are those skills that are really meant to help you get through a crisis situation without doing anything to make the situation worse or without doing anything to hurt or kill yourself. And so distress tolerance skills often do include distracting things, doing things that bring you some pleasure, doing things that relax or soothe you, or just doing things that pass time safely. If I were listening to music as a distress tolerance skill, I would really try to throw myself into listening to that music. And I might even like rate my like distress before I started listening and then rate it again after I listened and see if there was any decrease in my distress as I really threw myself into that process of listening to music. So I might not just be kind of like bopping along to my favorite song, but I might be really focusing on the lyrics or I might be really focusing on the bass or the melody. Again, it's using that experience of mindfully listening to music to get through that period of time when I'm really freaked out and distressed. That's when it becomes a skill. So it's purposeful. Exactly. You got it. You mentioned distress tolerance. You just mentioned mindfulness. And there are four specific modules to DBT, two of which we just referenced, mindfulness, distress tolerance, and then there's interpersonal effectiveness and emotion regulation. Can you walk us through what someone who self-injures might expect in each of those modules and how they might apply it in therapy when it comes to self-injury? Yes. I'm going to start with mindfulness. I sort of think of that skill as like the basement (laughs) skill or the the skill that everything else is sort of solidly built upon. I guess foundation would be a better term to use. So mindfulness is really this sort of active engagement in the present moment and attending to it without judgment and without trying to hold on to it. It kind of goes along with that concept of dialectics that change is constant and mindfulness. If we're really aware of the present moment, we also have to be aware that it's going to move on to the next moment and that'll move to the next and to the next. And while change sometimes is stressful to people, I think realizing that change is constant can also really give some hope because that means that any really terrible situation you're in right now or really any intense emotion that you're feeling or intense urge to hurt yourself, that moment will pass, right? And there will be change. And so mindfulness is really sort of 
the skills one uses to practice strengthening that attention muscle to be able to sort of focus on the present, notice the present, and also let it go. Those skills are taught, like you said, in a module, and we approach mindfulness in DBT with probably a bit more structure than some of the other mindfulness teaching approaches. We break it down into the how skills and the what skills. So the what skills of mindfulness are observing, describing, or participating. And those are just the kind of different ways one can approach any particular moment. Observing is exactly as it sounds, done with the senses, listening, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, those kinds of things. And describing is putting words or labels onto those experiences. So anytime I turn it into something verbal, I'm describing it. And then lastly, participating is sort of jumping into the flow of an experience and really kind of getting into and being in the present moment. And then the house skills are one mindfully or one thing at a time, non-judgmentally and effectively. So do what works. In any given moment, the kind of recipe for mindfulness is picking one of those what skills, observe, describe, or participate, and then doing it in a how way. So really kind of throwing yourself in, like we said, we'll use that listening to music again. If, if you're doing the observed skill of listening, right, you're really throwing yourself into listening to that song. And then you're trying to do it one mindfully. So you're just listening to music. You're not also sending a text to somebody and, you know, also have the TV on and doing your homework at the same time, right? Like you're, you're just listening to that music one mindfully. You're going to be non-judgmental about it. So if you have the thought, I hate this song or I hate that lyric, like you notice it and then you just let it go and you get back to the listening part and then effectively. So doing what works to listen to that music. So that might be turning your phone off or turning it upside down where you don't see the text come through. Mindfulness skills are just such an important layer of being able to attend to your emotion and being able to pay attention to your relationships. And so I really think that's one of those skills that just kind of sets the stage for everything else. And then the other modules, distress tolerance would typically be one that we would start with fairly early in the process of somebody presenting to treatment wanting help with self-harm because distress tolerance skills, I sort of think of them as like the band-aid skills. <laughs> like they kind of give you something to sort of like initially stop that pain or stop that hurt and get you through until you can learn some of the other skills that are going to maybe help sort of treat that wound at the source, if I'm to mix a bunch of metaphors for you. <laughs> but I think that distress tolerance skills, again, help you get through a crisis. They help you get through a period of intense distress safely and without doing anything to hurt yourself and without doing anything that might make you feel even worse. And so those are the skills we talked about that are, you know, things like distracting, soothing. There's a whole set of skills within there. And then also some of the distress tolerance skills, the ones I just listed were more of those change related skills. Some other ones are also more acceptance related skills, practicing something we call radical acceptance, which is really, really trying to accept the present as it is without going down that mind path of like, this is unfair, or I can't believe this happened to me, acknowledging those thoughts, because those thoughts happen and they're valid, but really working to just accept that whatever it is happened and to radically do so. And there's some other skills within distress tolerance about sort of turning the mind and learning how to use that sort of mindfulness muscle to focus more on the effective thoughts and behaviors in that distressed moment versus letting yourself kind of run monkey mind down that path of acting on the distressing thoughts or urges as they come up. That's kind of big picture distress tolerance. 
And then the other two modules, interpersonal effectiveness and emotion regulation. Interpersonal effectiveness is exactly what it sounds like. It's the skills to help you really build and enhance your relationships in your world. This is broken down by thinking about the goals of a relationship. So kind of what are your objectives? Is the main goal of an interaction to actually meet an objective, like to ask for something or to say no for something? Is the main goal in an interaction to really enhance your relationship with someone so to you know build a stronger relationship with your mom or make sure that what you're asking for you do in a way that still keeps a good relationship between you and your friend and then the third one is maintaining your self-respect so is there something about that interaction that you need to pay attention to to be able to look at yourself in the mirror the next day and so we kind of break down any interpersonal interaction into thinking about those three goals or objectives and there's different skills you can use accordingly. A lot of people probably heard of Dear Man. That's kind of the famous interpersonal effectiveness skill. And it's really just a script to help people ask for what they need or say no to something that they don't want. In interpersonal effectiveness module of DBT Skills Group, you do a lot of just practicing interpersonal interactions. There's a lot of role play. There's a lot of looking at different video clips from like TV and movies and thinking about like how effective the different characters were. And so, you know, DBT Skills Group is really a fun way to learn these skills. And we try our best to take these to real life examples because that is the whole point of this treatment is to give people real skills that will help them. And then the last module is emotion regulation. This is a really important module that I think we are finding drives some of the outcomes in this being a really kind of helpful treatment for people struggling with self-harm behavior. So emotion regulation is that skill set at helping people take a look at the utility of emotions in our world. Like, why do we have emotions? What are emotions useful for? This is where we really think about that sort of how do emotions play into like our wise mind experience, right? So many times people coming to DBT, remember we talked earlier about how it's that group of people who really have intense emotion experiences, right? Intense and sensitive emotion experiences. A lot of times these people have really gotten frustrated with their emotions because the emotions have caused problems for them over time. And so stopping at the beginning of emotion regulation and kind of giving a shout out to the emotion experience and like what it helps add to our world and our lives, right? And there's emotion experiences that are great, like love and joy and listening to music and just like feeling all the feels that come up with that, right? And so there's times where having big emotion is actually really enjoyable and lovely and can make a huge contribution to the world when people share about those experiences through creative ways and can feel great to the person experiencing them. And so emotion regulation is all about kind of recalibrating why we have emotions and recognizing that like there's some great parts to emotion too, in addition to some of the maybe more difficult parts of emotion experience that we and our clients have had in the past. And then really unpacking what an emotion is, looking at the model of emotion to understand the sort of physiological or the body related aspects of emotion, to understand the thought component of emotion, that some of our emotion experience is just us trying to kind of interpret what the heck is happening in our body based on what's also happening in the world. And then also the experience experience physically of an emotion. So not only the internal physiological feelings, but the emotion expression, the way we show it on our face, the way that we show it in our body. For example, I'm somebody that when I get anxious, sometimes I get like red and splotchy all over my neck. And so there's like a visual representation of 
my internal emotion that comes out. And that's communication to the world, right? People might see it and be like, oh, that girl is really nervous right now. Or some people might see it and be like, what is wrong with her? She has a rash, right? So our emotions tell things to the world too, even sometimes in ways we maybe don't want or don't like or aren't sure how to interpret. And so emotion regulation is kind of about unpacking and understanding emotions with the goal of then doing some high-level skills related to that. Emotion regulation skills include problem solving, include something called opposite action, which is learning to really almost change your physiology of emotion with the hope that that changes the downstream effect of the emotion and the labeling. Every emotion has an action urge related to it. An easy example, I'm gonna use my own anxiety again on this one. When I was younger, I was very shy and I did not like to talk in class at all. When I did raise my hand to talk, I'm sure you can imagine what I would feel and the way my body would look, right? I'd get all red and splotchy and my heart would be racing and you know, I would be reading all these cues as this is terrible and I don't wanna do it and I need to run the heck out of this classroom. So my urge when I was feeling fearful and anxious would be to like run or to avoid and to try not to answer questions, to try not to get called on. And so opposite action would be saying, okay, if my urge is to run like heck, I'm gonna do the opposite and I'm gonna stay. And if my urge is to be quiet and avoid answering a question, I'm actually gonna do the opposite. And I'm gonna like confidently raise my hand and I am gonna try to be the first one to volunteer. Those behaviors, doing those actions that were the opposite of my urge, kind of would confuse my body and my mind, right? Cause I'd be like, wait a minute, I'm feeling all this anxiety and my heart's racing and I really wanna run out of here, but instead I'm raising my hand and my shoulders are squared up and I'm appearing confident maybe I'm not so fearful anymore. So it starts to have you kind of like change up that cue and you really can change your emotion in that way. And so emotion regulation module is all about thinking through when you might choose to actually change the emotion through something like opposite action versus when you might decide that the emotion is not something that needs to be changed and maybe you need to change the situation and go towards that problem solving. That's kind of big picture what we talk about in an emotion regulation module. If you can't tell, it's one of my favorites. And I probably actually say that about all of them, but <laughs> this one is one of my favorites. And it's our, one of our longest modules. It takes typically six to eight weeks to get through the content of that one. Well, thank you for sharing your personal example <laughs> regarding the anxiety as a kid. The opposite to action, how do you think that could apply to self-injury when someone has the urge to engage in NSSI to self-injure? What would be an example of opposite to action in that moment? Yeah, so the application there would really highly depend on that chain analysis. So understanding the emotion that's driving that urge to self-harm. Let's say for somebody, it's intense sadness. Let's say that this is a person that anytime they really feel that sense of loss and they remember that breakup they went through or they remember that pet that died, they feel this really intense emotion kind of wash over them and sadness is the key one there. Maybe over time, they've learned that when they're sad, there's something about self-injury that sounds appealing, that feels appealing in that moment. So they've gotten into this pattern of engaging in that behavior when that emotion comes up. So in DBT, if a patient and therapist over time have recognized that pattern, one thing that could be done is deciding to really target that sadness. And anytime the sad emotion comes up and is recognized, the patient could commit to trying the opposite action skill. The urge when somebody is sad is often to kind of like isolate 
and kind of always think of it as like go to the cave to go be alone and curl up in a ball. You know, we, we kind of think about that idea when someone's sad, that's the urge. And again, maybe in this example, we find that when the patient is alone like that, that's when those thoughts and urges towards self-injury come up. So using opposite action there, the patient would commit to try to do the opposite of that urge. So when they notice that sad washing over them and they're experiencing, you know, those thoughts and sensations and that urge to go to the cave, instead they say, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to go engage with the world and I'm going to call my friend and I'm going to go be around them or I'm going to go walk around a store or, you know, I'm going to just go do something else to be more active and kind of out and about. Then you see if that actually changes the sadness. In that example, you almost hear a little bit of a double skill usage because also it could be that while they're sad, they're also feeling really distressed, right? And this kind of like wash of intense emotion coming over them. And that's when you would want to use a distress tolerance skill. And it could be that for that person walking around the store, just looking at stuff is pleasurable and distracting. And that may actually sort of distract them away from that distress they were feeling while at the same time be going out active, you know, toward an activity against that sort of sadness urge. And those two things in combo could really get them through and maybe they wouldn't self-harm that day. DBT is all about doing little experiments like that to see how the different skills actually, again, increase or decrease a behavior. And, and that's over time how somebody learns what works for them. Yeah, I love the little experiment. I do that a lot in my work, in my clinical work. Uh, I'll give a challenge just to just to try something, not commit to it, because committing to something sometimes can be overwhelming. But if it's an experiment and it fails, then there's no harm, no foul there because it was just an experiment. It wasn't my commitment that failed. You got it. We just got new data. Exactly. Yeah, and that's DBT is all about those sorts of ideas, like big commitments, small commitments, tracking things over time with the diary card. This really is a very active treatment where the patient and therapist are engaged together, kind of sitting on the same side of the table, looking at self-harm as a problem and trying to understand what to do about it. I haven't talked much, but there is a whole early phase of DBT that focuses on pros and cons. And that is a part of distress tolerance skills where we really work with our patients to understand the self-injury and to understand the function that it served for them. So what have been the pros about that? What have been the cons? And both what are the pros and cons of self-injuring and what are the pros and cons of not self-injuring? And those things, uh, you know, often are somewhat related, but when you phrase it a little bit differently, sometimes different information comes out. One of the early dialectics that presents itself in DBT is this idea that to the therapist, the self-injury is a problem. To the patient at the beginning, the self-injury may not be a problem. It may be an effective strategy that they found really helps them in some way with their intense emotion. And so until the therapist can really dialectically look at the patient's perspective and try to get more information about that, it's going to be hard to move forward. And so part of that sort of synthesis of opposing forces early on in treatment is really doing a strong assessment of the pros and cons of self-injury from the patient's point of view to understand what skills might even be helpful to try to really address some of the things that were maybe working for the person about self-injury. You mentioned wise mind. I think that's worth talking a little more about what it is because wise mind to anyone listening that's not familiar with DBT is like, what is it? What is this word? <laughs> like, why are you what describing she, wise mind? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what is wise? Can you describe this? Of course. The concept of wise mind is covered in the mindfulness module of DBT. It's sort of a way of just organizing 
our approach to the world. We think about it that there's kind of three states of mind. One would be reasonable mind or, or rational mind. And, and that is the kind of way of looking at the world that's just the facts. That's the kind of mind I want to be in when I'm doing my taxes. I just want to be focused on like numbers and the details and I want it to be specific. And I really don't want much emotion in there. Like I just want to be getting it done. Contrast that to emotion mind. And that is the way of looking at the world that really just focuses on that experience and the feels and the body feelings and what I'm thinking about it, et cetera. I would love to be an emotion mind like that moment I'm falling in love. That's a beautiful moment for that. Like, I don't even want to think about the facts then. I don't want to think about, is this person right for me in the long term? Is this good? Right. Who cares in that moment? Right. I just want to be in it. You're laughing at me, Dr. Westers, but you understand what I'm saying. And then wise mind is sort of like the place that's kind of between those two states of mind. It's not always equal parts, reasonable, rational mind and emotion mind. Like it, it's kind of this like space that hovers in between. And so wise mind takes the wisdom of both of those other ways of looking at the world. It takes the wisdom of the rational mind and the facts and the data and the wisdom of emotion mind and the perspectives that add, that adds for us, which are also a kind of data. Like our emotions tell us a lot about the world and it combines those together to really give us this sort of more holistic view of things. And so to run with my falling in love example, yes, in wise mind at a certain point, you would want to think about that, that partner and you would want to say, okay, here's all the emotion mind feels that I have about this person. And then here are the facts about how compatible I am with this person and our values and our goals and like what we want for our lives going forward. And then you kind of would approach it with a wise mind decision about something like, would you want to partner with that person long-term? So wise mind is a way of moving through the world where, again, you take into account all those different perspectives of your experience. Then you kind of try to integrate that into your gut over time. The mindfulness practices can help you learn how to sort of tap into your wise mind more effectively. The more mindful you are of those different things we talked about, like the sort of data facts, reasonable, rational side, and the emotion experiences in your body and thoughts and physiology, the easier it is to kind of integrate those things over time and access wise mind. I mean, we are human after all, so we do have emotions for a reason, like you mentioned, but we're also not robots. We're just pure logic and just have to stuff our emotions away. And that's where I guess the acceptance of our emotions and being willing to experience them, but not necessarily identified with them. So I, I like the middle ground of walking wisely in I can use reason and emotion. I can be a fully human being with no shame. Yeah. You've got it. Again, I think remembering kind of the heritage of DBT, often people who came to this treatment early on were people who really felt like emotion mind was where they lived most of their time, right? And often they felt like they were kind of like whipping in the wind at the tail of their own emotion, you know, and that had become exhausting. And so we have found a lot of times in DBT, we spend some of the treatment, just learning to appreciate the emotion experience of being human again and seeing the value that is in that experience while also recognizing that being led by emotion alone is probably not the most effective way for most people to move through the world. Yeah. Thinking about mindfulness, though, individuals who self-injure sometimes are incredibly mindful of their urge to self-injure or the distress that's surrounding them in that moment. And I've heard some people express concern that mindfulness may increase urge to self-injure. What response do you have for that? And would it warrant or merit focusing more on the emotion regulation? So I think mindfulness alone is 
not necessarily going to do much, right? Mindfulness is a skill for the most part is an acceptance skill because it's all about accepting the present moment. And so you are correct that if somebody is having an urge to self-harm and they say, I'm going to mindfully experience this urge, they're going to experience that. (laughs) And if the urge includes an increasing urge and, and then even like an urge toward action, you could see if you followed that train down the track, you could maybe end up self-injuring. I think the place where DBT really tries to pair these ideas together is the skills layer upon one another. And so if somebody's decided they don't want to self-injure anymore, then they're going to think about the combination of DBT skills that could help them in that moment. So I would say mindfulness is skill one, right? Because first you have to even just notice that you have that urge, like that's an important part of accepting it. And then you have to pair that with a change skill. And so in this case, it might be that you decide you're going to use distraction and you're going to then take your mindful awareness of that urge. And instead, you're going to actively shift it toward listening to music. And you're going to focus on that mindfully versus the urge to self-harm. Or you could decide to your emotion regulation point that you're going to use the opposite action to emotion. And if you're feeling intensely sad alongside that urge, you may decide you're gonna sort of target that sadness and you're gonna try that opposite action to sadness and call a friend and go hang out with them for a while. And again, you're gonna do that mindfully. You're gonna mindfully hang out with your friend versus be mindful of that urge. Now, we do in DBT work on mindfulness of urges. And you know, certainly the sort of guidance here is not to always just actively jump away from an urge because there are times that that's really hard, right? And and there's times you can't just drop everything to go toward a distraction and you have to learn to sit through that urge. And so in DBT, we will practice using mindfulness and think about it just like riding a wave. We talked about change is constant. So the intensity of an urge in this minute is going to be different next minute and the next minute and the next minute. And typically self-harm urges sort of go up, they hit their peak, and then they come back down. Now, the comeback down may not be all the way back down, right? It may, an urge may kind of like dance up at the top a little bit, or it has a little bit of ups and downs up there, but eventually it does come down. Mindfulness practice can include urge surfing, which is learning to just observe non-judgmentally that urge each moment and to note the changes in it and commit to not act on turning that urge to action. And that's where the kind of nuance of using mindfulness around that's really important. You've got to remember those prior commitments toward not self-harming, and you've got to think about those pros and cons and have those written down somewhere or easily accessible so that you can remind yourself of the reasons you want to stop self-harming. And I'm not trying to present this as an easy idea. This is something that takes practice. And, you know, that's why DBT includes so many kind of opportunities for that and phone coaching so that someone can, you know, really get the support they need to try this new way of engaging with their self-injury urges and go with that over time. And so, yeah, there's one example of how you might use mindfulness in that situation. So how good is DBT at helping people stop? self-injuring and doesn't matter if it's the true DBT program treatment with the four aspects with the phone coaching the individual therapy the group therapy and the therapist consultation doesn't matter if it's that or could it also be DBT informed therapies 
So how good, yeah, how good is DBT at helping people stop self-injuring? Yeah, so I'm going to speak to, let me just say, I'm going to speak to the adolescent data because that's what I'm most familiar with and that's the research I've been involved with. So in the study we did that I spoke about earlier with University of Washington and UCLA, we did find that non-suicidal self-injury decreased at a greater rate in the DBT group compared to the comparator group, which was an active comparison group. It was called individual and group supportive therapy in this particular study. And so we found that over the course of treatment, those teens and families that had been randomized to DBT, that those teens really did show greater reduction in their repeat non-suicidal self-injury behavior compared to the teens who'd been randomized to the other condition. And the rates were significantly different. That gave us some hope that DBT was acting in the way that it had acted in the adult trials and that, you know, we really did see those reductions in non-suicidal self-injury. We did also see reductions in suicidal behavior. And again, this study was for teens who really presented to the treatment with need for both. They both had suicidal behavior and non-suicidal self-injury. So this is a really specific population. And I want to stress that as there's more to learn about teens who struggle with NSSI alone. But yeah, I mean, I think think we have an indication that DVT does support reduction of non-suicidal self-injury. And I think we have more to learn. To my point earlier, you know, DBT is a complex treatment with a lot of pieces, a lot of modalities. And to your point, like what I think of as like comprehensive DBT, the full model with individual, the group, the consultation, the phone coaching, that's not always easy to find. And, you know, DBT is a six-month treatment. In adult studies, it was actually a year. In our adolescent studies, we did six months. I would love to see a year because I personally have, have just seen with patients that really a year gives you the chance to learn all the skills twice, to go through those skills modules two times. And I do think that it's a lot to learn and a lot to practice. But the data we have for teens right now is based on six months of treatment. But yeah, it's a complex treatment and it's an involved treatment. So I think that we need to unpack it a bit more. I do think in the community, a lot of times places do more DBT informed treatment to your point, which is where maybe they teach the skills or maybe a DBT therapist uses some of the concepts like doing a chain analysis and a solution analysis or integrating some of the distress tolerance work into the therapy, for example. We don't really have a lot of data on how just doing pieces of those things might impact self-injury. Certainly, I think, you know, those of us who are, who are therapists and even patients can come up with some ways that those things might be helpful when done in little bits and pieces, but we just don't really have the research that we would need to sort of prove that that is the case. And so I think there's more to be done in that area. There is one study Dr. Linehan did some years back where she looked at this question of whether DBT skills group or the DBT individual therapy were sort of the more powerful pieces to this. I won't go into the whole study design, but the main take home was that the DBT skills group plus case management had some similar outcomes to comprehensive DBT. So there was some indication that skills group is part of the active sort of ingredients of what is happening here, whereas the individual DBT therapy plus more of an activities group did not really hit those same kind of positive outcomes. We do use that study to think about the ways we might just add a skills group in some of our treatment situations where full DBT is not possible. There is some evidence that that can be helpful some when it comes to NSSI reduction. But I think for now, where the research stands, really the comprehensive full DBT approach is where we really see the sort of helpful outcomes that we are hoping for with this kind of treatment. 
And I know that sometimes it is hard to find true DBT programs, treatment programs, or even DBT-informed programs that take insurance, because I know a lot of people who may not have all the resources, and then they're going to be expected to do six months of this comprehensive program that's out of pocket in the community is just not realistic. And I wonder, too, with the research, if the focus and the mechanism of change is the emotion regulation, if that's that module, one of the four modules of DBT is most effective if focusing on development of emotion regulation might go further than the comprehensive piece. So maybe not everyone needs every single module. They may not need the interpersonal effectiveness, or maybe they don't need the distress tolerance, or maybe they don't need the mindfulness. Or I, I would suspect everyone needs it, but maybe some is less of a priority or less important for some individuals. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great hypothesis. I think it would be, yeah. I mean, I love the way you're thinking because I to your point, we really did just have a paper come out from this research. Uh, Dr. Jenna Sarno was the lead author, where we did find that emotion regulation was a mediator to that self-harm remission outcome. And so it does seem like that's a really important part of the treatment. And in targeting that, we were able to see change and differential change in emotion regulation related to outcomes. And so that does give us some indication that maybe there's a treatment signal in that group of skills. And And that might be something to try in a future study would be to isolate out that emotion regulation skills module set and see if that makes a difference. I will say where that's interesting is, you know, so many of the places that are DBT informed really more focus on the mindfulness and distress tolerance modules. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. I think, again, mindfulness is kind of that, you know, foundational skill set that I think most therapists use components of because it's just all about learning to acknowledge and recognize your feelings in a given moment, right? But distress tolerance skills, a lot of those that really map on to like the safety planning process at a lot of treatment centers or, you know, that kind of early treatment that's done when people are struggling with self-harm behavior, like inpatient units, a lot of times we'll teach distress tolerance skills, for examples, or IOP programs. We do focus a lot on that. And again, distress tolerance is a part of emotion regulation. It's that early crisis part, you know, but I do think the longer term use of these skills and kind of approaching them in a deeper way is something that will make change. Yeah, I think that yeah, the distress tolerance is great in moments of crisis because you got distraction. If that's what helps, then that's what helps. But distracting ourselves when you're describing it, it's like a Band-Aid. It doesn't really help at the core. It just kind of patches things up for the moment. And we don't want to just distract ourselves because we're never really truly learning to sit with those difficult emotions that are a key part of the emotion regulation. And I like your comment, though, too, about the skills groups, the groups where it makes sense where maybe there would be a utility there because when we're with other people that are experiencing similar things that we experience, we can connect with others. We know that we're not alone. And sometimes just knowing that we're not alone, and I know a lot of people listening to this podcast have actually reached out and said, hey, thank you, like now I don't feel as alone. But there are a lot of people out there that I feel alone. And I wonder if the group component to DBT has that utility and it's important because there are other people that get me and they're not going to just invalidate me or judge me, but they're here to learn as well and yeah, and to grow in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that's a huge part of the DBT treatment experience. And I mostly work with adolescents and young adults and in the adolescent work and the adolescent study as well, we approach group as a multifamily group. So we had teens come in with their parents and families do the group together. And I am just such a huge fan of this approach because I think, again, to your point, like 
it really is helpful to be around other people that are dealing with the same things or similar things that you are and to not only kind of learn from their experiences and how they're trying to use these skills, right, to kind of see how they're doing, but also to have that validation, like like you said, of like, this is something that happens and that some people experience and we can make it through, you know? And so I do think that there's a powerful piece to the group component of just feeling seen, understood, heard, known, you know, that I think underlies some of the utility of that as well. I will say in the research studies, we have had active comparators that have included groups and where they match the time, you know, for a group. And usually, or at least I can speak to an adolescent study, that group time was spent just doing an activity. So it wasn't a skills-based group, but they like would watch a movie together or do a craft activity together, you know, so the teens had a chance to be around other teens as well, but they really weren't focused on the skills themselves. And I will say we haven't unpacked that data completely to understand those teens experience group and the comparator. But I can tell you that anecdotally, you know, the teens would talk about really enjoying that activity group part too, just because it was nice to come be around other people their age who were in a program like this for self-injury. And they didn't talk about their self-injury in the group, but they all knew that that was like part of the reason of being in the project. And so, you know, I I do think there is something again about finding your kind of nets of support in the world. And I think that skills groups and process groups, et cetera, can be a really important part of that for people. And you just referenced something I think I probably should have clarified earlier on with DBT. The focus is not so much processing or exploring or unpacking in individuals, in the group context, that is, in individual self-injury Typically, we advise against that because that can be triggering for some individuals or some people may think like, oh, wow, that person has a better reason to be here than I do. So there's this comparison and then the end goal is lost sometimes where people will feel the need to get more validation or to get the validation. And and so for people listening, it's not just a focus on the self-injury because we typically advise against that, but learning the skills to maybe tolerate the distress that we're talking or regulate the emotions that might drive the behavior. Exactly. The skills group in DBT is a class and it very much is focused on like learning and practicing the skills. And in fact, to your point in DBT skills group, when someone does want to talk about practicing a skill to manage like a self-injury or or to manage uh, self-harm behavior. They just talk about it as the problem behavior or the behavior I'm trying to change. So we really try to keep any talk about self-injury, suicide out of the DBT skills group room because of the reason you said that sort of idea that sometimes it gets people into sort of a comparison space or it can be triggering for folks. But also, again, it's a class and and we can still talk about the skills without directly getting into the details of that. Now, the individual therapist is going to explore that work and and really talk about those urges in a very minute way or minutia way, as we talked about with that chain analysis. So it's not like that is being ignored by any means in DBT. It's just the place for that is not the skills class because the skills class is all about learning. And as we all know, you learn best when your emotions are kind of in a sort of steady, manageable place, right? If you're feeling really upset or freaked out, it's hard to take in new information. So we really want to keep the kind of emotion temperature in the skills group at at a nice, moderate, comfortable level. And also in DBT skills group, people can join at different points throughout the six months. And so you will have some people who've been in treatment for 
five months and maybe they're really not even, you know, dealing with self-injury urges anymore. And then you may have a new group member who is really, you know, in the difficult part where they're having urges every day and it's, it's really distressing. And so because you've got different people at these different points of treatment, we've also found that it's just better to take the more detailed talk about those urges to the individual session versus the skills group. Well, bringing this all together, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents? So I think for parents, I would recommend, one, just doing the best you can to be there for your kids and to be a seatbelt as they go through this. Like, think of yourself as that kind of thing that can catch and hold them whenever they're really going through these points of urges, distress, frustration, sadness, you know, whatever kind of big emotions come on whenever these self-injury urges come up. And also to have patience and know that in that moment, your child is doing the best that they can with what they know and the skills that they have to get through. And I say, look for treatment. We know that there are treatments that can help and DBT is one of them, but there are also others. If you're looking for DBT treatment, I would point you to Behavioral Tech, which is the organization that Dr. Linehan started that really manages all of the training of DBT therapists. And there's a place there you can actually search to find local DBT therapists. So that's a good place to start if you're looking for therapy for your child. Lastly, I would say for parents, these DBT skills are skills for everybody. One thing that you do as a DBT therapist is you practice the skills yourself because we all need these skills. And so I really think parents learning DBT skills can be really helpful too. Parents can learn to manage their emotions in a way that works better for them. And in doing so, not only will that help your personal life as a parent, but that will also help you as you parent your teen and as they're going through learning these skills themselves and trying different things to manage these intense emotions without hurting themselves. So I would say kind of hold out hope that there are treatments that can help and any opportunity to be part of a multifamily DBT experience, I'd encourage you to take it. And I'll be sure to put the link to the behavioral tech website as well as to your TEDx talk in the episode notes in the papers that we've referenced today. Wonderful. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether researchers, clinicians, like psychologists, therapists? Yeah, so professionals, I would recommend, one, just getting to know the DBT resources in your own area. If you're somebody that is a therapist or a provider helping patients and you yourself don't really know DBT, that's okay. And it'd be important to really understand where you might refer your patients if you feel like this treatment could be helpful for them. You also could look at that same behavioral tech website and sort of search for therapists in the area. Now, if you as a provider are interested in learning more about DBT, there's a lot of opportunities to do that. One, I would say you can just buy Dr. Linehan's books and start to study on your own. But also, I first learned DBT by having sort of a study group where me and a couple of colleagues decided to learn DBT together. And we started reading her initial book and then kind of went from there. There's ways you can form out self-study opportunities, and then you can build up to actually doing a training course. More information about that can also be found at that same behavioral tech website. You can learn more about the different courses they offer for training. Some of them you take as a team, some of them you can take individually, but they've got a lot of different opportunities for training if that's something you're interested in adding to your own clinical skill set. 
And then uh, for researchers, I would say just keep your eye on the literature. There's more and more data coming out about DBT as we go. I think there's a lot of work to be done, to your point, Dr. Westers, in really unpacking this treatment a bit more and understanding if there's certain modules that really are driving the change that we see. I think we need to do more research around that. And I think also we need to understand DBT's effectiveness in other populations. So much of what we know about DBT and its effectiveness is in people who really have this long and profound history of self-injurious behavior, suicide attempts, suicidal ideation. And I think it'd be important to understand it in people who experience self-injury urges in isolation without suicidality. And so, you know, I think there's definitely more research work to be done in that area. And and I urge researchers that are listening to, yeah, get interested in DBT and help us do some of that research going forward. And finally, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? Yeah. So for people with lived experience, one, I'm, I'm so glad that they found their way to your podcast to, you know, learn more about this and to think about what those of us in the research and clinical worlds are trying to do. And again, everything I do is to help. And so I need to learn from perspectives of people with lived experience about whether or not the things I'm saying even make sense or or align with your experience of what you've gone through in your life. And I will say like DVT as a treatment doesn't like I don't know, it's not really like the most brand new thing you're ever going to have heard, right? So if you look more into DBT, you're probably going to say like, oh, that's a DBT skill. I totally do that. I didn't really think of that as a skill. And so I will say the thing I appreciate about Dr. Linehan is in putting DBT together, she really compiled a very large set of skills. And we always say in DBT, there's not one skill that works for everything. But there is definitely a skill that will work for everything because there's a large menu of skills. And so for someone with lived experience, I would encourage you to kind of wiggle into the DBT skill world and, you know, see what you recognize, identify what you already use that works for you. And then maybe there's going to be something in there, too, that could be another skill you might consider adding to your toolkit that could work for you if you ever did have these urges come back again or if you continue to be working on decreasing self-injury in your life. Thank you so much, Dr. Hughes, for all your knowledge and just breaking down research and breaking down DBT because it's a it's a, a lot of stuff. There's a little bit longer episodes as people are hearing, but I think it's really good because we constantly are talking about DBT. Even physicians and pediatricians I work with will refer to DBT or other therapists to DBT, parents to DBT. Everyone knows the word, not everyone. Well, <laughs> most people know the word, but what does it entail? Thank you for breaking it down for us today in a way with great examples and hopefully is really a digestible for the people listening. Yeah, so thank you for participating, for joining, and for your friendship. Yes, it's been so great working with you over these years, and I appreciate your passion for this topic. And, you know, I think you and I come at this work from slightly different angles. And it's always so fun to have the chance to think together about the questions we have and the things we learn from our patients and the families that we work with and how we can take some of that and move it forward to hopefully continue to make a difference when it comes to helping support people who are suicidal or struggling with self-injury. So thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. 
It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy. So if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.